Oh, technology. What a beautiful thing it is. What a beautiful thing to be a part of a congregation that can just laugh along with it, right? When things don't go the way they're supposed to go, um, and I have to hold a mic in my hand. To... We'll never know why there's the little demons in the wires of this church. Uh, who knows why it is? But I can tell you one thing. It's, it's cool to know that these things can't distract us because, you know, whatever. We're going to have a pop. And I will let you know one thing. When you hear those ugly pops, please know, I don't know if this makes you feel better, but for you, it's in a speaker. For us, it's in these little earphones that just like, just like shred your cerebellum every time they go off. So every time you hear like a, we hear an explosion inside that's like sends shrapnel into our ears. Uh, it, it is, the fact that I can hear you laughing is, is a miracle at this point in the world that we live in. So um, I, you know, we've been in, we're in Galatians uh, and we're looking at this idea of grace as we come out of uh, our time of celebrating Easter and I, I can tell you, last week I talked about, you know, the time that I, that when I came to know Christ for the first time, and I've, I've shared that story in various forms or bits and pieces over the time that I've been here. But I can, there's one thing that I'm shameful about when I think about it, and, and, and I think most of us can resonate with this. If not, if you're the, the one perfect Christian, then come find me afterwards and you can have my job or one of the elders' jobs. We'll, we'll do a lottery. But I can vividly remember... After, soon after becoming a follower of Christ, the first time that I found myself being embarrassed of my faith in Christ. Right? And not in a major way, not like I wanted to renounce the faith or anything, but in a subtle way. Here's what happened. I was with some friends. I, I had a very eclectic bunch of friends throughout my high school time. You know, some were Christians, and I had my youth group friends, and then I had my punk rock friends, and then I had a couple athlete friends, and then I had the, the goth kid friends, and then I had the friends who were drunk all the time that, for whatever reason, I liked hanging out with them, even though I wasn't getting drunk myself. I, I, just all across the map. And so I had these silos of friendships, and I remember the kind of, within a year or so of being, being a Christian, I was with those group of friends, and you know, it was time to eat, and I, I, I like, chose consciously to not pray for my meal in front of them. Because, you know, they, I don't know, they think it was awkward, they'd make fun of me for being a Jesus freak. I don't really know why. And then, soon after that, I started to notice, I, I did this for a while without even doing it consciously, but I noticed that, you know, I loved blasting Christian music in my car when I would drive, but I noticed that if I ever pulled up to, like, a red light, I would turn it down. Not because I was being considerate of, of the lady next to me, but because I didn't really, I don't know, I didn't want him to know or hear. And I remember, like, when I caught on to that, when I first started to notice, oh, why, why are you doing that? Right? There's the guilt that comes. And, but I think every one of us has, maybe you're not the turn down the, the, you know, maybe you're the one that pulls up to the light and turns it up. And if you do, great. Keep doing that. We all should do that. As a matter of fact, if you're listening to ACDC, when you pull up to a red light, switch over to Chris Tomlin and, and crank it. And then when you pull out, you can turn your ACDC back on. But, you know, we should do the opposite of that. But, but as I grew into adulthood, I realized there are times, and be honest with me, there are times where we kind of are tempted and want to turn our Christian off a little bit, or at least down. Maybe you are the, the most vocal, you know, Christ follower when you come here, and, and even in your family setting, you know, you're the, you're the minister to your family, but you got to turn that stuff off at work because, you know, someone might look at you funny. Um, maybe you're a student and you have church you and school you, and they are very different people. Right? 
To some degree, we're all guilty of this. I would doubt that there's anybody in this room that at no point ever has kind of at least thought about just toning the Jesus down a little bit in certain social settings, right? And maybe there was a time, for me, it's kind of one of those, there was a time where I was there, and, and the Lord kind of, at this point, I don't care anymore. I don't have a wife and children. Who am I trying to impress? Right? Like, I will, just, I will just pour Jesus out. It's all good. But, but we have those times. Like we're, and if you feel that way, right now you're wanting to be like, no, not me. Like, don't, don't feel bad. I think it's a normal part of the Christian life in the world that we live in because we have sin inside of us, right? We, we want to sometimes change the way we talk and act and whatever, right? Here, here's, here's a litmus test for you. Wherever you work, if you still work, you know, would you add scripture to your signature? I'm not saying that, like, that's what you need to do to be a Christian. Don't, don't feel that, oh, I feel guilty because I, no. But, but would you? And, and when you're, if your first instinct was, we have that tendency. We have that tendency inside of us that says, for most of us, we, we want this subtle kind of thing where we turn it off in certain settings. And we might think that's a small thing. You know, I, I'm, I'm an outward Christ follower. I talk about Jesus all the time. I invite people to church. I'm in my neighborhood. You know, I, I, walked, in the, in the, I walked as the SPC float in the parade once a few years ago, so obviously everyone in Stowe knows that I'm a Christian, right? But, but we all do it in subtle ways, and we think they're minimal. But what's really happening, and this is the harsh truth, and what Scripture labels that at is hypocrisy. That is what, by definition, hypocrisy is. It's when, it's when we have our, our Christian self and our non, or maybe just slightly tweaked less Christian self, depending on where we go. And, and today, Paul is going to deal with hypocrisy just like that, actually within the ranks of the, the, of the apostles. And so it's one of those, well, the apostles were these godlike creatures who were flawless, and we all, sh all should be like the early church. But one of the things we don't realize is the early church was a mess, right? We should emulate a lot of it, but yeah, it was a mess. And these people weren't perfect, and Paul today is going to call somebody out for their lack in that sense, that for their hypocrisy in dealing with God's people. And so we'll learn, we'll learn a couple things. Number one, we'll kind of learn the subtle ways that it, it creeps into our life. You know, number two, we're going to kind of see how when we engage in hypocrisy, we might think it's little, but how it spreads within the church and within those outside the church and kind of the damage that it causes. And then finally, we'll look at how we deal and move beyond it. Like, how do we grow in Christ? And Paul, through his time in Galatians 2, deals with all of these things. Uh, and so let's, let's just get up together as we stand to hear from God's word. Uh, we'll be reading all of Galatians 2. So, uh, you know, if you're a reminder, we stand not because there's some, like, ritual to it, not because God will speak to us louder if we stand, but it's just a, a, a reverence to, to, the, to the word of God, right? You can, you can sit when I speak, but let's stand when, when the Lord speaks. And if you're unable to stand, you know, don't feel like, God is hearing me less. No, it's, it, it's just a thing that we do. Don't, don't let the, the thing become the thing, if that makes sense. Okay, let's read together. Galatians 2, verses 1 through, really, through 21. Then after 14 years, I went to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, 
in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because he was secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our free Christ Jesus, so that they to them we did not yield for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, that they were, who, sorry, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, I saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. I know it can be tedious to read through large chunks of Scripture, but I think it's, it's beneficial. I think a lot of times we live in a world where, where the church cherry-picks verses out of thin air and they, they kind of cover half of it. So sometimes it's just good to read through the whole, the whole thing together, right? 
in this, in this passage in Galatians 2, you can separate it a couple different ways, but there's really three kind of distinct sections or movements, if you will. Right? The first is what I, what I call the street cred setup. Right? Paul is reflecting back on a past time. He's saying, you know, 14 years after I went, I went to Jerusalem, and he's talking about the interaction that he had with the, the, the Jewish apostles at that time. Then he's recounting in the second movement, I call this the opposition section. That's when he goes after Cephas, which is Peter. Right? Whenever you see Cephas, that's Peter. They're the same person. Right? Just, a different way of, just a different way of saying his name. Cephas equals Peter. Remember that. And then number three, kind of verse 15 and on, is this argument section. Paul is laying out why this is wrong in light of what it is wrong, kind of what to do about it. And he uses his own life as an example of how to combat this hypocrisy. Right? And so let's work our way through those kind of one at a time. Right? First section. The street cred setup. In verse 2, it tells us that he went to Jerusalem really for two worries. And the language here is a little, a little hard to understand. But the first is that he had a revelation from the Lord to, to go. And so he, he went in obedience to God. Um, and the second is because of a fear or a worry. Right? The Lord, uh, Paul was worried about something. And it's a weird thing. Um, Tim Keller talks about this a lot. That Paul, whenever he worries, we should, we should be worried. Because Paul was not a worrisome guy. Right? As a matter of fact, if you remember back, like the, the chapter previously, right? he's pretty bold. He goes in and he proclaims his gospel. And he said, even if an angel tells you something different, don't listen to them. Like, Paul doesn't lack confidence. Right? He's not a guy who comes in and is a little timid and worried about what people think. Paul proclaims the gospel, gets pelted with rocks, thrown out of the city, gets up, brushes himself up, bandages his wounds, and goes right back in and keeps proclaiming the gospel. He's confident in what he's saying. And so the, the, the question here is kind of, what is he worried about? Right? And at first glance, it, it seems like he's trying to get approval like for, for the gospel that he's proclaiming. Like it's a, it's, a, it's a check. Like, am I preaching the right thing? Let me go to the apostles and kind of lay it before them and let them tell me whether I'm right or wrong. But that's not what's happening here. Paul is, 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 is fully confident in the gospel that he's preaching. We know that even back right in 1.8, like I just mentioned, he talks about, it, like, it's so confident that anyone else preaches anything else contrary to this, you should call them a false teacher. He's, he's doubling down on his message. But here's what's happening. The, the Judaizers from last week that we were talking about are, are really making headway. They're coming in, to, to Paul's places where he's preaching after he's been there, and they're saying, listen, his gospel, it's right, but it's incomplete. Right? You also need the Jewish rituals. You also need the customs. You also need circumcision. And, and Paul knows he's right, but Paul is also not a dumb guy. And he realizes that it's starting to wear on the effectiveness of his teaching and preaching. Like, they're coming in, they're ruining his message, and they're kind of succeeding at it. Right? People are listening. Those converts that he's just gotten, he's starting to lose some of them. And so he's not worried about being right or wrong. He knows and he trusts in the gospel of Christ, but he's worried about ministry effectiveness. And so he goes to the apostles because he wants to engage with them and get their kind of concrete public approval for what he's teaching and doing. 
so that he can go back to the other places and say, look, like your own, the Jewish apostles are, are with me on this. Right? That's, that's what he's trying to do. And so for that, it's, it's very smart that he does a couple things, a couple key things. Number one, he takes with him Titus. Titus was a disciple of Paul. Right? Titus was a, was a young leader. Um, he, you know, Paul had found him and, and started to mentor him, and, and he shared the gospel with Titus, and Titus became a believer by Paul sharing the gospel with him, and he grew in leadership ability. And so Titus kind of developed into this really gifted, really well-versed, really kind of well, well-doing well Christian, not in a, in, a hypocr- in a sense of like works, righteousness, or anything, but he got the message, and he ran hard with it. And he had a giftedness in teaching and preaching and leading. And so, in a way, Titus is kind of Paul's protege. And Titus is a Greek guy. So Paul brings Titus with him to engage with the, with the Jewish, Jewish leaders in a way of saying, listen, this whole idea of the gospel needing all these extra things, I don't think so. Like, look at Titus. He's doing that on purpose because when he starts to ask them, hey, like the gospel that I'm preaching, right? Like, do you, do you approve of this, right? Like, this is, I'm, I'm right here. Like, will you give me the kind of the nod of approval, your endorsement, so to say? And by the way, if you don't, what you're saying is Titus is incomplete. And he's a pretty bomb dude, right? And so for them to, like, go back and renege on Paul would mean that they would have to demand, like, right then and there that Titus be circumcised, and, and they don't. And he says that they don't, right? And so it's, it's a street cred thing. In, in verse 3, they, they say, Titus didn't have to be circumcised. When I went to the Jews, they didn't require him to. Why would you require anybody to if the people who you presume to be in charge of you say you don't have to? It's a major endorsement. In verse 7, right, they, they say that they entrusted Paul to bring the gospel to the uncircumcised. And so they're saying, look, I, I, Paul is gifted uh, at taking the gospel over here. We are gifted at teaching to the circumcised people. We, we talk about uncircumcised, circumcised, Gentile Jew. Um, when the church kind of birthed out of Christ's resurrection— you have to understand that the, the, the faith, the, the Christian faith up until that moment was a deeply cultural faith, right? Like there was so much wrapped in Jewish ritual. And a bad thing. That's how God kind of chose to, to carry his people through history, right? He, he chose them for himself in Exodus, and he put all these rituals and laws upon them so that they would look distinct and, and different from all the world around them. And so their entire identity as Jews had been to be this distinct people. We're circumcised. We don't eat this way. We don't live this way. We have very stringent rules that set us apart so that when people look at us, they could very clearly tell who we are, right? After Jesus, all of a sudden, it's open to everybody, and so you have these cultural classes coming in with their own ways of doing things and their own kind of traditions and their own personalities and their own cultural things. And, and it, it obviously creates tension in the church. It's not because they're these awful people. Right? It's because you're, you're meshing what used to be one little clean world with a hundred other worlds all of a sudden. Right? 
It would be as if tomorrow we, you know, we gather here for worship and all of a sudden we added 300 people in our numbers, but they're all Middle Eastern refugees. And we started adapting worship to make sure that they had a place here and could participate and, and things would look differently and you all of a sudden are the minority in this place. And there's a part of you that's like, well, we've done it this way. I think they should conform to the way, right? Like they're all of a sudden. And that's a normal thing. Now this one's dying. I think we should just be acoustic. Normal live stream, just go full-blown acoustic up in this joint. Right? But that's the cultural clash that they're dealing with. And so, so Paul is, is, is there, and he's trying to get the people to understand that he has the credibility. And when he's there, he gets what he's after. Right? The people, the Jewish leaders, the apostles, approve of him. And it says, right, in verse 7, they entrusted Paul to go to the uncircumcised. We understand that there are people that are predominantly Jewish in culture and predominantly non-Jewish. And our giftedness is in teaching them, and your giftedness is in teaching them. And it's okay that you should go do that. And we send you. And then in verse 9, even James, Cephas, Peter, and John, you know, those are the, the big three kahunas of the Jewish leadership, right? They're the, they're the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Right? Those guys even extended fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul's argument is, look, uh, this gospel that I say is right, that I say you shouldn't believe anything else, it's not just me. I went to the Jewish leaders of this Christian church that has started, and I asked for their nod of approval, and they gave it to me. Right? So now, why are you adding stuff to it and causing division among the people, among Jews and Gentiles, when it's very clear that not just I, but your entire leadership says that we don't have to? Right? Verses 1 through 10 are about Paul getting the street cred he needs so that when he goes and preaches to the communities like Galatia, that he can say, I've been to Jerusalem. Those Jews are cool with what I'm doing. You should be too. Right? They approve and so should you. And so with that armament, he then gets into verse and he starts to deal with Peter. What was happening with Peter is Peter... Uh, started to proclaim the gospel among Gentiles, and Peter was very open to, to Gentile culture. He was doing things that a good Jew wouldn't do, right? He was eating, he was extending the hand of fellowship to them. Peter was in a space where the Gentiles were accepted. He and Paul were kind of on the same wavelength. But then people, disciples of James, show up where Peter is, and all of a sudden, Peter's different. Do you remember in like middle school, you maybe wasn't so popular, and like you would eat with them at lunch, but then when like the cooler, you would, you know, all of a sudden you wouldn't eat with them anymore. Why are you friends with them? I'm not. <laughs> right, that's what Peter did. The folks from Jerusalem get there, and all of a sudden Peter stops eating with the Gentiles, and he takes, he kind of comes back, and they're like, wait, like we, we had a meal together yesterday. No, we didn't. You need to be circumcised. Wait, what? Where is this coming from, Peter? Right? There's, there's all of a sudden, because there's some leaders there that weren't there before, Peter starts acting differently. And Paul has no patience for that. He says that Peter is doing so 
is what we define as hypocrisy, right? He acts one way around a set of people in a different way and treats people differently when someone else is watching. He says, it's, it's not consistent, Peter. And so you stand condemned. It's a harsh thing. If we act hypocritically as the body of Christ, we stand condemned. Whoa. Remember, this is after Jesus died and rose. Right? There is now no more condemnation in Christ. Right? It's a harsh word that he gives to Peter here. And he does it directly, and he does it publicly. This isn't an evening conversation at Peter's house where he's like, hey man, like you really, like, you, you're not... No, he calls him out in the public sphere. He says, this can't be how it is. Right? And so for Peter, the thing at play here is not just his hypocrisy, but the reason. Why is Peter doing this? And it says, because he fears the circumcision party. Peter's motivation is something we probably could forgive for all of us. Right? He's afraid. He's afraid of persecution. He's afraid that the Jewish people will come after him. And so when he's with the Gentiles by himself, he, he embraces them and he extends the hand of peace. But when the Jews are watching, he's like, I don't want them to like come after me. And you know, I saw Paul get have rocks pelted at him. I don't really feel like having rocks pelted at me. So I'm just going to keep my distance from them while, the, while, while those folks are here. And then you know, afterwards, I'll come back. And Paul says, no. And then he uses himself as an example as to why no. And Paul, of all people, gets to say no. Because Paul is the one who has allowed himself to be persecuted for the truth of the gospel. Right? He is the one who says, I will go in and I will proclaim that we don't need to be circumcised. I will proclaim that these Jewish rituals are now dead, that Gentiles are included with not belief in Jesus Christ. And if you want to throw rocks at me for that, great. As a matter of fact, get in line, because I've had it done many, many times. I'm still here. Keep going. Right. And so he starts in verse 15 and 16. He just recaps the gospel a little bit, right? He kind of cements this idea that the Jewish rituals don't get you anywhere, because what does he say? By the works of the law, no one will be justified. Don't be hypocritical, Peter. They can come at you and they can throw rocks, but if you cave on this, you're compromising the whole of the gospel. The whole point of any of this and why we're here is that it's not by the works of the law that we're justified, but by Jesus. That's what we're here to proclaim. If you want to shy away from that, you might as well go home, because what are you teaching? And if they want to throw rocks at us for that, great. Are you scared of rocks? I've had them pelted at me last week. It's not that bad. You'll live. And if you don't, you'll still live. Right? And then he goes into this large argument. Right? In 17, he's essentially saying that, yes, to reach Gentiles, it might look like I'm sinning to the Jewish people. Right? But I'm not. <clears throat> right? They might see me as a sinner, but I'm not. And certainly, if I do what I'm doing... They might think I'm a sinner, but guess what? You can't call Jesus a sinner for, for condoning it, right? Christ is not a servant of sin. And then in 18, he talks about this rebuilding, and it refers to what Peter was doing in Antioch. We spent all this effort, Peter, tearing down the walls of, of Jewish customs and the muck that they keep trying to attach. If you now go back and build that back up, you're just, you're, you're a transgressor. Why would you, why would you do that, right? Because in verse 19, 
Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. For Paul, the law is the tool that showed him how incapable he was to live up to Christ's standard. Because the whole point of having this Jewish law all these years is so that we would look at it and go, I can't possibly measure up to that. And Jesus' response would be, exactly, you can't. That's why you need me. The whole reason the law exists is to tell you that you stink at keeping it. And Jesus' response is, that's why I came and died for you. Because you're not capable. And if you try to put these rules back on, you're just going to wreck the entire thing that we've tried to build. The law exists to show us that we can't keep it. Then we have the famous passage, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What's Paul telling Peter there? He goes, listen, if you're worried about the circumcision party, if you're worried about persecution, you need to start to remember some of the words of Jesus. Because Jesus had a couple things to say about that, didn't he? He had some comments about persecution and what it would look like for the disciples after his time was done. You can go to John 15 and say, As they persecuted me, so they will persecute you. He said, If you're worried about having rocks pelted at you, Peter, I have news. They're going to pelt rocks at you. Remember when Jesus was still alive among us? He told us, Hey, after I go, they're going to pelt rocks at you. If they did it to me, they're going to. Part of the Christian life is accepting that persecution is a part of your life now. That's why we're excited that we serve a God who, come hell or high water, even death, at us. It can't touch us because we live in an eternal reality, not in a temporal human reality. That whatever happens to us, we're promised that on the other side of it, we get to be with Jesus for eternity. But guess what, Peter? Harshness is part of life. And so we learn a a few things from these. Number one, we learn something very practical in how Paul uh, engages with the the Jewish folks. And that's that every one of us should have a Titus. Uh, You know, the the, the low-key motto of of the church here that I've seen written down in a couple different places um, is, is that we are, you know, disciples making disciples. But I think most churches do a pretty crummy job at actually defining what discipleship is. Right? Like, what is discipleship? Is it, is it coming to Bible study? We are, we are disciples who invite somebody to Bible study on Tuesday night. Is that discipleship? I don't know. Maybe part of it. Right? The best definition of discipleship that I've ever heard <clears throat> is from a guy named Jeff Vanderstedt. He's the pastor of Doxa, <clears throat> Doxa Church in Washington, and this, this is, you should, like, if you have something to write with, you should write this down. If you want to know, you, know, you are called to, to go and make disciples. You are to be a discipler. What does that mean? Here is your job, your number one job in the world. A disciple is defined as one who desires to worship Jesus in all of life, is increasingly being changed by Jesus to obey him in all of life, and then teaches others to do the same thing. That's it. Do you notice how there's no church invitation call in there? Do you know that your primary role in discipleship actually has very little to do with inviting people to church so that they can hear me preach? I'm not that great. Really not. 
Your primary role as discipler, as a discipler in this world, is to the truth of the gospel, to continue to try to submit more and more of your life to Jesus, to love and grow in doing it, and eliminate the hypocrisy, and then spend your life teaching and leading and getting others to do the same thing by how excited you are to do it. As an example, we're all called to have a Titus. The church grows as we individually go out and find ourselves a Titus. And they find themselves a Titus. And they themselves a Titus. The church doesn't grow because we have the best VBS and somehow the, you know, the thousand families that are out there somewhere just waiting for one flock into the building like birds and stay. That's not how the church grows. The church grows by one-on-one -on -one discipleship, by people that are passionate about the word of God and living as Christ calls them to live, not because they feel some guilty compulsion, but because it just brings them joy. And they go out and they infect others with it. That is what discipleship is, and that's what we're called to do. Number two, if you proclaim to be a Christian and live hypocritically, you are doing tremendous damage to your soul, to the church, and to those around us who don't know Jesus. One of the number one reasons that non-Christians don't want to step foot in this building or any building has a steeple just like it is because they think we're hypocrites. And most of the time, they're right. We are. Right? We are. We proclaim and spit things out at the world and tell them how to live, but then we don't back it up. Right? We, we, we come in here and we, we raise our hands high, but then we pull up to the, to the red light and turn, turn the music down. Right? We, we, we live hypocritically. And every time we do, we diminish the witness. We make the church look bad. We diminish our soul. And we, we, we have people in the world who don't know him who have missed opportunities. Every time you've thought of sharing the gospel with someone and haven't, that's a time that they could have heard the gospel and accepted it and didn't. That's a missed opportunity. You have done in that moment a disservice to someone who could be called to be a brother or sister in Christ, and the Lord could use you to bring them there. And if that sounds harsh, it should. And remember, I'm preaching it myself just as I'm preaching to you. This isn't some, like, finger-wagging, right? But we, we damage so much and we're scared to do it because we're worried about things that God says are just supposed to be a part of our life we're worried that we'll be persecuted we're worried that we'll be made fun of we're worried that we might lose our job and the response of scripture harsh as it might sound is tough cookies as a matter of fact yeah you are going to be made fun of you are going to be persecuted you might actually lose your job over this you're still called to do it. And if you're saying, well, but Vince, you know, where's, that's it. There's no, there's no way out of this. We don't have some, some passage that we can misinterpret to say, well, but certainly I don't, you know, I, my, my company has a policy. The Bible has a bigger one. Sorry. I hate, I hate to tell you this, but when the Lord, you know, downloaded through, through the apostles and the Holy Spirit the, the word of God into the written text, and he wasn't like, oh, man, 
yeah, I, that, that phrasing there, that's really going to conflict with that company's HR policy manual in like 2,000 years. He doesn't care, and neither should we. It's just the truth. Some of you are going to get mad at me for this, right? You're encouraging me to get fired. I'm not telling you to go out there and cause trouble, but I'm telling you that your number one call in life is to be a disciple, as we described, and your number two call in life is to love and care for your family, and your number three call in life may be, after you serve the poor and you do all these other things, maybe to do your job faithfully in the area in which you're called. Right? You've you got to get the priorities straight. Right? And when we do live hypocritically, we do so much damage. And here, here's the third point, and there is a small silver lining. It doesn't excuse us, but it's a silver lining. When we fail, there is grace. That's why Paul started this whole book with grace and peace be, is with you. Because right? ultimately, it's not like Peter just continues to be condemned. Right? But Paul and Peter reconcile. He calls him out, but not in a hateful, damaging way, but in a, in a truthful way that leads to, to restoration. And so there, there's a grace that is extended to Peter, even in the midst of his hypocrisy. And the good news of the cross is that as we live hypocritically, there is a grace extended to us but it doesn't excuse our behavior. We don't get to say, well, there's grace, so I, I know I should do that, but it's uncomfortable, so I'm just going to live my days out, and then, you know, forgiveness when I get to heaven. That is true, but I would argue if your mentality is that, I would really start to do some soul-searching as, as to how committed of a follower of Christ you really are. Because when we say we are followers of Christ, that means we actually follow him. If your mentality is that you're just going to coast through life and do whatever you want and then just end on your deathbed, I'm not sure that your heart is in the right place. I would do some serious prayer and searching on that. Paul has no time for hypocrisy because he has seen how it damages the church. He tells us in the, in the word that we read today that Peter's <clears throat> transgression was so serious that even Barnabas, Barnabas was kind of dissuaded for a little bit there. And he was one of the solid ones, right? When we live hypocritically, it tears down the witness of the church. We are to take the hypocrisy in our life and we are to put it to death and to set it at the foot of the cross at all costs. That's what Paul did with his life. That's what he calls us to do with our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that are harsh, that cut us deeply, that convict us, that maybe even make us angry at you. We, we praise you that your word is true and steadfast and that in it you, you give us the key to life. That you tell us how we are to live in light of the gospel, in light of the fact that you died and rose for us, how we are to move and live and have our being. And we praise you that we have your word that tells us how you want us to exist in this world around us, how you want to use us to usher in your kingdom. And Lord, we pray for forgiveness for the times, even this week, that we have acted hypocritically. We pray that your grace might extend to us, but more importantly, we pray that your spirit might shape us to move away from such things. To shape our hearts to change and to, 
to grow and to shift to be more and more like you. We pray that this week, as we encounter opportunities to combat our hypocrisy, that we would be reminded of this truth, and that your spirit would rest on us and allow us to move forward in a way that is better and faithful. We thank you for the words of Paul and the life of Paul that lived as an example to us. We thank you for the reminder that persecution is a part of life. And Lord, we pray for the strength to endure it. Because it's hard. Because it's difficult to, to deal with, with people that mock us for our faith or tell us that we're less or try to seek to destroy us. Those things are all difficult things to deal with. And we talk about them in the abstract, but they're very real. And so we pray for your spirit of peace. That as we seek to live for you, that we will be reminded of your truth and of your love and of your mercy and of your grace. Be with us this morning as we experience a tangible representation of that grace in your holy meal. Be with us this week as we go out that you would give us opportunities to share the gospel, to live as followers of Christ without fear and with reckless abandonment. Because we know that no matter what happens, life can't touch us. Thank you for your love, for your mercy, and your grace. All of God's people said together, Amen.